You're listening to Retail Refined, a market scale podcast with me, Melissa Gonzalez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Retail Refined, a market scale podcast hosted by me, Melissa Gonzalez. Today, we have Mike Provence with us as our guest. Mike Provence is a serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker on technology, business model innovation, and new venture management. As CEO of 3x3, Mike leads a marketing technology company focused on modernizing the ways brands and liquor retailers engage and sell uniquely to the independent consumer channel. A digital and technology strategy expert, he has built groundbreaking technology businesses and launched award-winning digital properties over 30 years in financial services, information services, manufacturing and healthcare industries, and with science technology offices in the U.S. Navy and U.S. Special Operations Command. In today's discussion, we'll learn how independent wine and spirit retailers and grocers compete with the growth of online purchases. We'll learn about the tools that they can use to make independent liquor stores stay relevant and thrive in the independent channel. We'll also look at how brands with hyper appeal target hyper local marketing strategies. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much, Melissa. I appreciate the uh, opportunity. Yes. So before we dive in deeper, can you tell our audience a little bit more about 3x3? Done such a good job summarizing it already, but let me uh, add a little bit. So our mission is really to capture the hearts and minds of drinking consumers for the alcohol brands and independent beer, wine, and spirits retailers. And we do this because for years, this corner of the market in our estimation has been overlooked as a connection to the consumer. Um, the, for the, the industry's always depended on the independent channel as the place to launch new products, as a place to test new products, have tastings, do all those things that help create a magical discovery opportunity for consumers. But as the industry's grown, all of the marketing dollars have really flowed through the mainstream to drive volume. And with not just what's happening this year, but shifting demands of consumers to move digital, that magic of discovery is being lost where we can walk in, walk the aisles, and find something new to try. And that's really the one big distinction between when you buy alcohol at an independent retailer or you go to a, a big box store or you go online because that shift has become more catalog oriented, more list oriented, uh, which has created a lot of growth and opportunity for bigger and well-known brands, but makes it harder and harder for small brands to be discovered. And so we focus our attention on the brands and the retailers that want to reach that consumer that's interested in discovery. I love what you say, capturing the hearts and minds of the drinking consumers. <laughs> you kind of capture my heart just with that sentence. But um, <laughs> So tell me, how, how does 3x3 predictive marketing model target consumers that are more likely to focus? Like, what, what is your methodology? How do you determine the demographic, lifestyle, and psychographic attitudes of the primary consumers on specific products? Sure. Everything we do is dri driven from a core of data. And, and that data is a combination of data that we have from our proprietary collection, which is our partnership with 1,500 retailers across the U.S. and Mexico. Um, but we also combine that with third-party data 
that focuses on those things you just identified, households, um, their their lifestyle, uh, psychographic and demographic attributes, those two in combination create a powerful modeling tool. Um, but we add a third element to that, which is stores have their own demographics and their own profile attributes. And so we also have built models of store types. And so that enables us to attach the right product to the right place, to the right opportunity for the consumer. And that's really how we begin to do that capturing hearts and minds, right? That we we don't just think about this consumer as a 50-year-old white male or this consumer as a Latino uh, millennial. Um, we think about where they shop, what they're shopping for, and then who they are. So how have you seen the world evolve? There's a lot of conversations, right, about, um, you know, AI models needing to be reprogrammed and not being able to really rely on historical data because the consumer in a world of COVID is just rapidly changing in so many levels. How do you, how are you addressing that? Yeah, that that's where a combination of, of industry and technology professionals comes into play because you can't build a long-term strong platform for the beer, wine, and spirits industry, unless you know that history at some level. And you also have to be aware of kind of what's changing in technology. So to your point, there's a lot of um, discussion around the, the AI models being biased toward historic uh, profiles of, of consumption. We recognize that we have to work with what's available, but we also understand that, especially in the independent channel, this is a place that tends to skew younger, skew more more ethnically diverse, more uh, female, right? And so we are bringing those insights into the modeling that we do. So when we build a model for a brand, we don't just plug in the numbers and see what audience it tells us. We go back and look at, does that audience really represent where this brand needs to go, right? We may have a brand that has been successful for years and years and years with um, with Gen X or or um, baby boomer males, right? But, it, you know, that that's the group I fall into. And at some point in the hopefully not this close future, that market's going to die down or die off, literally. Uh, so that brand needs to be thinking about how do you inject that uh, uniqueness into a millennial market or a uh, a Gen Z market or, or what whatever. And so we look at how the attributes that make that brand successful in its current market align to certain segments of newer markets that will have similar proclivities of purchase. Um, and to give you a feel for that, just as one example, sometimes you'll find that with, uh, say, a product like uh, IPA beer, that the natural assumption would be, well, let me pull that consumer from other beer consumers or or consumers that are uh, you know, somehow tied to the beer category. In reality, certain IPAs have buying profiles that are similar to more similar to bourbon than they are beer. So it's more about understanding the specifics of that brand and how it performs or that category. 
and the kind of consumer you're trying to reach with it. Yeah, I love that. I think we think about that when we're building customer profiles all the time, like what are we marrying them to? And it's not always exactly in the category of that product, but something that mirrors it. Can you tell us, tell us, you, you mentioned it a little bit, um, but let's dig a little deeper on your multi-pronged approach to follow customer preferences. You, you incorporate point of sales receipts, um, you, you look at inventory mix, uh, basket adjacencies. There's, there's a lot of, uh, facets, um, in your analysis. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Correct. Sure. Yeah. We, the core of what we start with is the point of sale data that we've collected across the network of stores. And that gives us a view into, uh, what's trending categorically at a brand level. It gives us a sense of the brand, uh, the basket uh, adjacencies, as you discussed. Those are often the most interesting in terms of determining the core strategy. Um, what we can layer onto that is a kind of collection of uh, known consumers attached to baskets that give us the ability to build household models. So when we go out and we use digital and social channels with our clients, we're targeting against households based off of kind of layered data model that helps us pinpoint on three, four, five attributes, what's the right mm, segment to go after. And to give you an example with a, a client, um, they were. this is one that we were doing as a strategy with them. We ultimately didn't run this one, but they were doing beach promotions, uh, give, giveaways of beach equipment. And... Um, so we use that to look for drinkers of the category that like the beach, that also like sweepstakes and promotions, because we're trying to couple in a very specific call to action and, and a specific set of uh, high propensity behaviors. Interesting. So that leads me a little, if you're getting that granular, you know, there's a lot of conversation around hyper-localization, and we've talked about that forever, but I think even more now that's being accelerated with COVID. So so many things are being accelerated with COVID, but that's another um, another area that is. So tell us how it's possible for to hyper-localize the message and then target consumers within a certain radius of the store. Sure. Yeah. And, and this depends you know, fully on the infrastructure of digital and social media. So we're not inventing any new wheels to get this done. Um, what What's new about what we do is how we utilize it. And so most people think about, I, wanted, I want to localize this advertise. I'll just geo-target everybody around the store and drop that ad so that I'm being efficient in the use of the uh, capital. But that doesn't help you with performance on the back end, right? And so we've basically trained retailers and marketers to think about digital metrics in terms of getting the lowest number possible, right? The lowest click uh, cost, cost per click, right? And, and that makes sense when you're just blanketing messages out to the market. But for us, we try to focus on spending less money overall but using it as efficiently as possible by looking at first the model that I talked about just a minute ago, and then saying within that radius of the store, call it two miles or five miles, and which and that radius is highly dependent on the type of store, where it is, what the the general demographics and economics of the socioeconomics of the 
region is. So we have to identify at a store level what the right targeting is, at a consumer level who the right target is, and then combine those on a platform where we can precisely drop programmatic display ads, Facebook and social media channel ads, and then be able to track the behaviors on the back end, right? So we look for um, measures of walking in the store, go activating on the store's website uh, as the kind of core measures of success. Do you also work with them on the content that's being programmed into the display ads? We do. In fact, with the retailers, our platform is not an agency-driven model, so we're not customizing advertising. We curate ads on a regular calendar, semi-monthly, that is available to those retailers. And so we will identify through the data what ads ought to be running in a given campaign window. We'll curate the content for that, build the content for that. And then retailers have the ability to go in, decide which ads they actually want to run. They're able to swap out bottle shots if they want to focus on a different particular product based off that ad. Um, so there's a lot of control we give to the retailer to tailor the message, but it's really about a, a portfolio of content that's available each in each window. Gotcha. Okay. And so you work with independent retailers, grocers, major brands. How do the services you offer differ between those entities and kind of what are the similarities? Yeah. So, well, one example, as I just was telling you about the retailers, our model with retailers, with the small retailers, is to give them a platform that is customizable, but also scalable because we curate the advertising. With brands and with larger, call it enterprise retail, those solutions tend to be more specific to their strategic goals, their particular challenges they're addressing. And so we come from a problem solution approach first. And often they're bringing the content to the table because we don't want them to create uh, a splinter of different strategy for digital and social. We want them to start with what their national uh, advertising strategy is, but then pull a piece of that off, make adjustments that make sense for localizing that, and then run it at a local level. So tell me, with the world changing so much, what have been some of the most surprising new trends that you've seen or that you've been able to uncover through your data analytics and intelligence? Well, you know, given all the changes, one of the biggest things we've seen is that buying behaviors are shifting uh, when they, when people go online. And this is something that doesn't seem apparent on the surface, right? And they're seeing this in grocery as well as, as alcohol, uh, that people, when they buy online, buy bigger baskets but they're going for longer stretches in between shopping. So at an aggregated level for most stores, what they're seeing is kind of pressure on their margins because those purchases are going to the more well-known memorable, memorable brands, uh, which are easy to find online. And they're buying more of it, but the overall spend isn't changing much for the consumer. They're not drinking more. They haven't, you know, this isn't panic buying. This is more stockpiling. And so the replenishment cycles have changed. The inventory mix has changed. Everything about a store 
the, from an operational and a margin point of view is up for grabs and retailers really have to look hard at realigning a lot of choices that historically have been dependable. Um, but the, the behaviors haven't changed in terms of level of spend. Where changes happened, and this is really a factor of how stores implement their e-commerce platforms, is that consumers, when they shop online, um, become much more of a uh, speed and convenience shopper, meaning we've talked with retailers who experience consumers buying very heavily off of their first page of their catalog website, right? So they shop for wines and they're buying wines that start with a, a number or the letter A because it's fast and there's some names they recognize and people are less concerned about discovery. And that is probably not emblematic of them being less concerned. It's just they don't know how to do discovery in a digital world. Um, and we, as an industry, have not built the platforms that enable discovery as much. We're getting better, and there's certainly a number of uh, mem membership sites, club sites, and well-tuned, well category-specific online sites out there. But from that retailer point of view in particular, they aren't equipped to move discovery online. That's where why we focused our efforts on the top of the funnel, the middle of the funnel where discovery happens and helping brands and retailers you know, get better at that, translate what they were really good at in the store to doing that online. I love that. Yeah, there's been so much, I feel, um, innovation online. I think there's been talks about it you know, and people not truly believing that online is going to, in some sense, try to mirror as much as much in, in person. You're seeing it more and more with like virtual pop-up shops and live live stream and all this way that it's like, how do we emulate that connection you get in physical and really bring it online? Yeah. I mean, this year certainly challenged retailers to do that. Some have done it really well with, um, you know, online bartender tastings and all sorts of things like that. Uh, and even sending tastings to the to the consumer at home so they can experience the product. Uh, but most retailers haven't. They're they're just trying to keep the business going, and these additional layers of doing something that's new to how they used to do marketing poses a lot of challenge. And they're trying to learn, and they're trying to grow at the same time that they're flying the plane. No, absolutely. It's it's not just you turn on the light switch and you could just pivot. There's a lot that goes into even the infrastructure around, you know, sending all those at-home packages, right, for the tasting. And um, from the consumer perspective, um, we talk a lot about the generational gap kind of shrinking as far as the um, appetite and aptitude for the older generations. Um, and I could say, <laughs> you know, um, generation, you know, uh, baby boomers or, or Gen X, um, or Gen Z, you know, Gen Z, everybody thinks, okay, they're, they're digitally savvy. We can target them. But when you talk about, um, some of the older demographics, I think there's been a lot of hesitation that they would, they would adapt these behaviors, but we're seeing that um, be proven wrong this year. Oh, of course. Um, yeah. So what do you see opportunity within that? At a core, you have life expectancy expanding. Right? And so people that use technology are going to live longer, right? You can't, and they're going to continue to shop. It's, we're extending the curve. And 
the industry rec the tech industry recognizes that Techstars just launched a new uh, accelerator devoted to technology that helps older people, right? And so we recognize that the generations that can use technology are going to be wider and live, you know, be older. And starting at 21, you're picking up people that have been using technology since birth. So you have this spread of the capability, but even within each generation, you have a distribution of that. So from a design perspective, from a user experience perspective, making that experience of shopping simple is the critical factor. I mean, look, if you look at any innovation over the history of humanity, adoption of that has been more about how familiar you made that innovation than how novel or unique the innovation was. I mean, this is one of the things that made Edison who Edison is, right? That he didn't just invent, but he figured out how to make that invention look like something people were used to. So that's what has to happen as we move people from shopping and walking in a store and discovering to being able to go online and find what they're looking for and to find new things that they didn't know they were uh, able to get access. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's that invention, but it's the it, it's the intuitive aspect of it that's really important. And sometimes when it comes to technology, it's not the ones, you know, with the bells and whistles. It's the intuitive stuff, right? That kind of simplifies life. So where do you where do you see the future of the beverage industry going in the next five years? Well, and for, for this industry, five years is a pretty short uh, window. You know, I would say, <laughs> five, you know what, you say that, right? Because we think, okay, I could ask you 10, 20 years, but we're in yeah. we're in hyperspeed of transformation right now. So I think a lot yeah. could happen in five years, but you can oh, tell me I, five I, or I, 10. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 look, I, I fully agree with you that you want to keep your prognosticating to under five years because right now, five months is up for grabs. Yeah, exactly. Um but I guess I said that in terms of product cycles, oh, right? Yeah. Because you have products that are already in the barrel that are coming out five years from now. From a consumer experience side, a lot is going to change in the next five years. At the same time, not much is going to. You know, there's been a, a big focus on, well, is COVID and everything this year uh, the, the event that transforms the way people shop? And now everyone's going to shop online. And my sense, and this is... a other industry people share this we saw a surge of online shopping out of necessity but it started to drop back even now and i would expect to see online become better than it was before it was under five percent for most retailers independent retailers in the industry and it'll drop back to under the 15 range for the next few years by the time we get to five years, I think you're going to see at least a quarter to a third of the country buying regularly online with alcohol. Um, you know, the, right now they say 70% of us shop online, which is true, but only true in certain categories. There's a lot of infrastructure change around inventory and delivery that has to improve and, re frankly, regulation that has to improve to see that kind of online buying growth. But um you'll see more of that. I think what's going to be more prominent and obvious as a change over five years is the top and middle of the funnel, how people experience brands will become much more digital 
much more personalized before, right, if they ever set foot in a store. And that's what, that's where I think smaller mid-market brands have to pay attention to, right? They've got to be thinking about how do we stand apart in a world full of noise online? No, absolutely. That's it's it's become more and more competitive, and loyalty is a fickle thing. I think it, it takes a lot more to get that customer loyalty um, ac- across across categories and in complete alignment um, with you about you know. I think at the height between the U.S. and and the U.K. and you know, e-commerce it was twenty twenty one percent. And you're, you're starting to see that drop. So I totally agree, but it definitely, it definitely pushes the needle and elevates, you know, um, what we need to deliver regardless of the channel to consumers. Um, so it's a, it's a good challenge that I think is going to make retail even better, um, in the long run, even though there's some unfortunate carnage along the way. Um, (laughs) that's true. Anytime you innovate. Yeah, exactly. Um, but this was a great conversation. Um, I think, you know, I've taken lots of notes, uh, but I think it's, I think it's great what, what you guys are doing for independent retailers and really helping them be able to understand how, how to, how to show up and how to differentiate and, and, and how to be competitive and resonate with their target consumers. So I ask everybody this question, um, before we log off, because it's a, it's an interesting world in 2020. Um, where, where are you located? All over. All over. Okay. <laughs> yeah. We're doing this call from Milwaukee, Wisconsin oh, perfect. today, but I'm normally in North Carolina. Oh, okay. The, the business is based in New York, but most of my team is between, spread between Miami, Denver, and Seattle. Fantastic. I know it's definitely, we've definitely learned that you could work from anywhere um, in 2020, regardless of the industry. So I'll, I'll pick Wisconsin. I've asked everybody, you know, we're not really traveling much right now, but we will again. So if I were, if I or the audience were to go to Wisconsin, what would be the top must, the top three things that you must do or see? Well, for about three months of the year in the summer, this is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And I would say next year when things are back to normal, Come for Summerfest around July fourth because oh, yes. it's a uh, worldwide phenomenon. I love it. Okay, I'm adding it to my list. You can imagine I have a growing list. <laughs> I'm sure you do. <laughs> but I'm going to be well traveled when this is all over, so I'm excited exactly. about it. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, thanks so much for being with us today, um, everyone. This is Mike Province, CEO of Three by Three, and this was another episode of Retail Refined. Thank you. <laughs>